Now, I really uh, enjoy the chance to preach and have enjoyed learning through Ecclesiastes, which hopefully you all have as well. Nodding. Good. Uh, And we're coming to the end of the book, but I get the chance today to preach from Ecclesiastes 10. And if you've ever read it, um, you might find yourself a little bit confused by some of the passages, some of the verses in it. So do I. Um, I think Reuben enjoyed giving me this passage today to preach because I think it might be the strangest, definitely within Ecclesiastes and maybe within the whole Bible. Let's just say that. So I'm going to show you just how strange it is by a few verses. The first one, always a good place to start. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. So I enjoy perfume, I'm sure like many of us do, especially if somebody else buys it for you because it can be expensive. I also like to wear it most days because I don't believe in saving it for some special occasion that never really comes and then you never use it. But I enjoy how there's a fine line between really nice smelling perfume and cheap or old perfume or perfume that gets a bit warm and smells a bit strange, do you know what I mean? Um, But in this case the verse is talking about dead flies being in the perfume, which would probably pollute the smell. I'm not sure what a dead fly smells like, but the quester seems to know. Um, Even though they're small compared to the quantity of the liquid, they still seem to pollute this uh, sweet-smelling perfume. It does make sense, but it just seems that dead flies is a strange way to start a chapter. So we move on to the third verse. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. Apparently, you can tell a fool by how they walk along the road. Who knew it would be such a tricky task? I think I believe this, though, because the other weekend, after one of the rugby games, they all kind of blurred into one for me. Um, My flatmate and I were, until we won, were coming home um, from town, and we missed our train stop because we were playing a game on my iPhone. Not Angry Birds, because I don't believe in Angry Birds. A game that was stimulating my mind uh, with word anagrams. Anyway, um, we missed our train stop and got off a stop later, but without the iPhone, I wouldn't have known that it would just take us five minutes to walk back along the track rather than 20 minutes around the road. So I feel like there was some wisdom there, even though we probably looked a bit foolish to begin with. So, we move on to another strange one, the ninth verse. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Yes, this is true. (laughs) There's not really much else to say there. The eleventh verse. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Now, I'm picturing right now somebody, legs crossed, with a flute, you know, a turban, and a snake coming out of a jar. That's the image that's going on in my mind. So it seems that if the snake comes out before the charmer has started charming, so to speak, then they don't get paid. Good. So maybe it's just a lesson in what not to be when you grow up, because it's not a reliable (laughs) trade, it seems. The 18th verse. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. So this verse reminds me of that really deep 
um, thought-provoking saying, which is, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) You know? Or like the, the Vodafone ad that's come out recently, which just says, if you don't have an iPhone, you don't have an iPhone. Quite an obvious statement there, um, because of idle hands, yes, the house would leak. And so the passage seems to continue in this vein. There's these odd little verses which might remind us a little bit of some verses in Proverbs, and they seem a little bit disconnected sometimes to the one that's come before or the one that comes after. And some seem quite obvious, and others seem just a bit bizarre. Yet we find this chapter in our Bible, so we can't ignore it. Um, We can't completely discount it. It may be called miscellaneous observations in your Bible. That might be the title that it's given. But we still find truth uh, and meaning in this. So let's think about why it's in there and what we can learn from it. It first seems to be teaching us that life is unpredictable, chaotic, and unfair. So that's a fun lesson to learn this morning. And the quester says in verse 6 to 8 that fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Later in the chapter, uh, verse 12 to 14, he says that words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. So it seems to be telling us that fools are rewarded, and the wise are at the bottom of the heap. When you do manual tasks, you could injure yourself. Be careful, because when you're knocking down a wall, there might be a snake on the other side. The wise speak gracefully, but it doesn't really matter, because a fool's words are louder, they spread, and are contagious. The world seems to be a bit upside down from the quester's point of view. Freak accidents happen even to the safest of people. They are common and unavoidable. Fools have no sense, but they just keep talking, and so have the power. Life is unpredictable and unfair. This is cheerful, isn't it? Now, we might all be able to think of our own fools now in our minds, people who seem to make silly decisions but still rise up the corporate ladder or get more and more popular or more and more uh, wealth. A few years ago when I was working in retail, I worked with someone who I got along with fairly well as a colleague, but it drove me mad because he didn't do anything at work And we were paid the same minimum wage, um, but he just didn't get anything done and even would sometimes bring his uni work to work when we were working and be doing that instead. And it drove me so mad that we were getting the same thing and I felt so hard done by it and thought it was hugely unfair. And it's obviously still a bit of a repressed memory a few years later as I talk about it now. But it just didn't seem fair and it really annoyed me. So we can see, and we know these people in our lives, we can see that life can be completely chaotic and unpredictable. So in verse 14, the quester comes to this point where he stated all these annoying little realities and places in life where there's no resolution. And then he simply says, No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone what will happen after them? So the problem with this unpredictability is just that. We can't prepare for it. It's a bit like this cartoon. 
can't read the words, it says, I only had enough room to go up to 2012. And the other person says, ha, that'll freak somebody out someday. (laughs) So the problem is that talking about what we don't know seems to be seen as being a fool or a foolish pastime. It leads to false hope and planning things that don't really eventuate if we don't know how things are going to work out. So the quester suggests another thing to counter this pointless pursuit. In verse 19 he says, A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. And we end there for today. Um, It seems to be saying, enjoy life, um, eat, drink, and be merry, laugh, find joy in life. Feasting, as long as it's not done to excess, can lead to great joy. Now that last bit about money can seem a little bit strange, being the answer to everything. And as I was doing some reading on it, I saw that it's really a bit of a translation issue. And what the verse is trying to say uh, is that money is necessary to provide or to buy things that we need in this life. Food, drink, enjoyment. So not necessarily that it is the answer or the, um, the answer to everything. So we are to find joy in life, according to the quester. And I found one of the favourite things um, about working at Shaw so far has been the joy that is within our staff team. Now, it's not laugh a minute. We do get quite a bit done. But I quite enjoy the fact that in the environment that we're in, we get along with each other. During break times, we talk, we laugh, we get to know each other. And there's joy in that kind of... um, purpose that we're all working towards together and you might have something similar in your place of work and it just changes your mood or your day um, or the tasks that you're getting done if you know that you're all doing this together and that you can find joy um, in your working together so the quester seems to conclude with a bit of a carpe diem type notion it still seems important to him however that to be wise and to seek wisdom is still crucial But the outcome is completely unknown. Ultimately, life is strange, and we don't know what's going to happen, so just enjoy it, according to him. Now, the chapter finishes here, but we know that this isn't where the Bible finishes, and it isn't where the big story finishes. There's still a few more chapters in Ecclesiastes, as we'll discover over the next few weeks, and then there's a few more books in the Old Testament and the whole of the New Testament um, that follows. So we don't end here, and I don't think the search for wisdom ends here. If you can imagine for a moment what the quester might have thought of Jesus. If Jesus had come along in his context, do you think this would be the conclusion he would come to in Ecclesiastes about wisdom? I don't think so. So how differently do we look at these words knowing what we know about Jesus who was to come? In the New Testament, it talks about Jesus growing in wisdom and in stature as he grew up. And people who knew him since he was a child and knew his family, when they saw him at his later age, suddenly wondered where he got this wisdom and power and authority from. And then we read in 1 Corinthians that Jesus became for us wisdom from God, as well as righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus was not only wise himself, but somehow he became wisdom for us. So, if Jesus is this ultimate wisdom, then I think the quester would have had a bit more to say about wisdom had he known him. 
So if Christ himself is the fullness of this wisdom, as we talked about last week from Colossians, and the quester was looking for ultimate wisdom, trying to find some sort of sense in this crazy world, which seems a bit like ours, then he would have found it fully in Christ. If the cross is the demonstration of the wisdom of God, then what about the resurrection which came after? Surely the resurrection has a part in this as well. The resurrection was active and it was visible. Jesus said he was going to come back and he did. He was seen by people, he touched people. It wasn't hidden or secret or private. It was part of the plan, part of the big story. It was the culmination of his life and also his death. So if there was wisdom in his death, what is the wisdom in the resurrection? The resurrection brought life, literally, to Jesus because he came back, but also to his followers. It gave them life and a reason to go on, and it gives us life and a reason to go on today. We read in James about this kind of wisdom from the message, three, uh, verse 13 to 16. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk, that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning, devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next. Not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honour. We can see in our context the places that people go to for wisdom. It might be Dr. Phil or Oprah or self-help or anywhere online, basically. I know that I quite often look to Wikipedia, which is basically an online encyclopedia for things that I don't know. But even that is almost completely flawed because anybody can add or edit something to this encyclopedia. And perhaps this is the case with the places that we look to for wisdom today because anybody who has a keyboard um, and a few thoughts in their mind and an internet connection seems to be able to provide wisdom and is suddenly respected as a sage. So as we read this passage, we're reminded of what real wisdom is um, and this understanding of the wisdom that Jesus brought. We can see what it isn't. It isn't boasting that you are wise, that you have it all together. It isn't self-promotion or trying to make yourself look better than others or trying to put other people down so that you look better. Instead, it seems to be a holy life. Holy just means other, which we model off Christ. And it's interestingly characterized by getting along with other people, which is quite interesting. 
It seems to relate to how you treat the people around you. It's not just something private and insular that you can cultivate on your own. It is gentle and pure, and it gives mercy. And annoyingly, it takes a while to cultivate this kind of wisdom. It's not something that will happen overnight. We know that you can't become wise straight away. You'll notice that it doesn't also say whether or not wisdom is always encouragement or conviction. It doesn't seem to define define exactly what it is. So maybe this kind of wisdom looks different in different situations. If the wisdom of the resurrection brought life, then maybe this kind of wisdom brings life to people, but it's not always easy to pin down. Some examples that I've seen. Now, some of you may think that it would be wise for me to be living on the shore, okay, which I'm not. So the promised land, etc., you know, I hear it most weeks. Um, It's a lovely place, but I'm not living here yet. And in my mind, uh, I chose the path of wisdom, I'm going to call it that, um, by deciding when I started this job not to move and live in a different area as well as starting a new church at the same time. Because it was important to me to be able to have somewhere that I was going back to that was safe and comfortable and I knew the people I was living with and I could relax and debrief. And so to rush into that and start something new at the same time as this didn't feel wise um, in my mind. You might still disagree and think that uh, this is you know heaven over here on the shore. But I feel it was wisdom and it brings me life um, for myself. Also, when I was considering taking this job at Shore at the beginning of the year, I talked to Charles, who's the principal at Kerry. Some of you may remember him from church camp. He came and spoke. And I was talking to him about the possibility of this job. We were talking about a few other options. And because this isn't a Baptist church, some people at Kerry had some words about how I should think very carefully about taking on this job, which was fair enough in their mind. And when I talked to Charles about it and I was saying to him that I really felt good about Shaw and I felt like there was a call there and that really the Baptist thing was the only thing um, holding me back, I guess. And he said, it might not have sounded particularly spiritual or anything like that, but he said that if I was feeling called, good about it, content, at peace with it, then that seemed to be reason enough. And at the end of the day, I still needed to have a job. And that might not sound very spiritual, that you still need something to be able to pay rent and buy petrol and food with. But if God is part of every part of our lives, then surely God is part of how we sustain ourselves and continue on. So it might not have sounded like he was being spiritual, saying, if you're feeling good about it, and it is a job that you feel happy with, then go with that. But for me, that was so wise, because it wasn't being bound by anyone else's expectations of me. And it gave me such life um, and peace when I thought through that advice. So I found that really life-giving. So we can think about the ways that we share in the sufferings of Christ, which we've talked about last week, through the wisdom of the cross. But I think there's also wisdom in the resurrection. And this wisdom brings life um, and growth and change in us. We read through Ecclesiastes, and particularly in this chapter, that the quester is trying to find wisdom. And he looks in all sorts of places, um, and he finds this crazy, unpredictable world that doesn't really bring any answers to him. And he comes to this kind of seize the day, let's just enjoy it and do whatever sort of mentality. 
And we know that that doesn't really work and it falls short and doesn't satisfy for very long. So he keeps looking because he thinks that this wisdom can still be found. And if he had met Jesus, I think he would have found it. So when Christ came and he embodied wisdom through his life, his death, and becoming wisdom for us in the resurrection, then we see this life-giving, this rising again in him and in us. Yesterday I was looking at an ad on TV and it was for the Sunday Herald and it was a moment where something from the culture kind of provides this like golden opportunity and it was talking about how the Sunday paper they were trying to sell themselves it described itself as Sunday is for living and I thought that was really cool Sunday is for living so if we think that for us Sunday often includes church coming together as a community worshipping together learning together teaching together and if Sunday is the place that we move forward through the rest of our week then Sunday is for living and so how do we show this kind of living this resurrection wisdom to the people around us we see that it's by being focused on other people by living a holy life responding to where we see a need that Jesus would have responded to this kind of wisdom brings so much life as the resurrection did and it's inspiring I think and it's a bit more cheerful than dead flies uh, and snake charmers even though that was a bit inspiring so we're going to move and sing one more song now but I'd just like to pray uh, as we close God we thank you for the quest um, the quester and his search for wisdom through Ecclesiastes But ultimately, God, we thank you for your son and the wisdom that he became for us. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection that brought new newness of life to us. And we pray that you would encourage and inspire us to bring this resurrection wisdom and life to the people around us in lots of different ways. Remind us how we can be that to other people and we thank you that you will always be close and bringing grace every day we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Amen Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church if you would like a free copy of today's message please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.